This is really about being free to create what you want your life to look like. We each are our own hero. And how do we take the challenges that come our way and see those as the birth process of us becoming heroic? Can you meet that judgment that ultimately will surface with neutrality? This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. Welcome back, everybody, to the Wall Street Coach Podcast. I'm very excited today to have Tom Bramher on. He is the CEO and president of Stackin. It is a financial therapy business with a mission to fix our relationship with money. And I don't know anybody who doesn't need a little help around that, uh, including me. So Stackin's app leverages behavior-based change, cognitive behavioral therapy, and direct one-on-one coaching to help us understand the why behind our money behaviors and build a healthy practice of financial wellness so that everyone can truly achieve their goals and not be stopped, which you guys know I talk about all the time. How are you being stopped? Knowing is half the battle. Tom is also the vice chairman of NetGuru, one of Europe's leading digital consultancies and a non-executive director of Global Source Partners, an emerging market research business headquartered in New York. Prior to this, he was a strategic consultant for a number of high growth startups and blue chip firms, having co-founded a business with the Financial Times, built and sold his own mobile technology company. He began his career though in the music industry, working with such artists as Underworld, Elbow, Stereophonics, and Tom Jones. Oh my God, my heartbeat still, I love Tom Jones. And a bunch of others who are now flipping burgers probably somewhere. That is the short bio on Tom. He has so much more robust descriptions, but thank you, Tom, for coming to my podcast. No problem at all, Kim. It's really just such, I'm so excited about your app stack and because having worked now in finance for 25 years myself, I've always been kind of rocked by the fact that people in the corporate area of finance, those day traders that uh, exist and investors are all around and living based on the market, based on money. And yet very few have ever seemed to indicate to me that they had done a lot of thought about their own relationship to money. What's your what's your experience with what I've just said? Is that true? Oh, absolutely. 100%. I mean, I, you know, this is true in lots of different areas. Uh, I mean, humans, we tell ourselves these narratives that to kind of make sense of the world. Uh, and we carry these narratives around in our heads. And irrespective of how much they, they re- reflect reality, we carry on telling ourselves these narratives are correct, right? I mean, if you, you, you take traditional economics, I mean, how much of traditional economics has been proven to be absolute rubbish in the past, you know, 15, 20 years, and yet we carry on you know, like the central banks of the world keep telling themselves that they, you know, they're in control of this, they're, you know, and I, I think it's in many ways, it's kind of the opposite. I think it's, un- I think it's unusual to find where our kind of mental models about things actually do relate to reality. Um, and, you know, specifically in the finance space, I think, you know, stacking is kind of interesting in this area. Originally, the business actually started out as a media company. We, we were producing kind of video, kind of irreverent content back in 2017, 2018. Uh, about finance and in that stage like nobody else was doing this it was kind of you know if you wanted to learn about finance you could only go and kind of learn about 
you know, the traditional finance uh, vocabulary or stuff, the stuff that people just didn't connect with people. And um, yeah, we saw this opportunity to kind of talk about finance in a way that people actually talk. Everyone talks about money all the time. They just they just don't use the terms that the traditional finance you know providers use. And so that's that's really where stacking started out. And it was through that period that we realized that there was this huge amount of kind of interest around finance, but also just complete confusion and and kind of an unknown uh, kind of grasp of how money related to people and really this kind of very broken relationship that everybody had kind of with money and what money meant to them. And that broken relationship can be anything from, you know, people who are uh, on the breadline and, 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 you know, in the low income deciles all the way through to people who earn, you know, and a lot, you know, way above the national average of, of earnings. And if you look at, you know, there was a report out of Bloomberg about um, a month or so ago with a third of Americans earning to over $250,000 a year um, struggle, uh, feel like they're living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, and, you know, it's one of these con- consistent, again, mental models that we have. We tell ourselves, oh, you know, the solution to money anxiety or these money problems is just to get more money. But all of the information you see, in, in, you know, if you kind of study, study this stuff shows that's just not true. You know, people get more money, but it just kind of like papers over the cracks of their kind of underlying broken relationship they have with money. Yeah. And that you mentioned that specific stat in one of the medium articles you wrote mm-hmm. about that one third, you know, of those 250K or above feel they are living paycheck to paycheck. And then you talked about this really being a health crisis because of the impact it has on our relationships, on our health, on our careers, like it impacts every area. What what do you feel is the first step somebody could take if they wanted to start to really take a hard look at the stories like you spoke to that they're telling themselves? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, as we dug into this a lot more, um, you know, you learn that a lot of our uh, our kind of belief systems around money are based on things that we experience very early on in life. Most people's kind of heuristics and beliefs around money are formed between the ages of about six to ten, um, and these kind of belief systems get lodged deep in our limbic brains. And there's an there's an analogy here actually with with diet uh, and food. Um, you know, if you if you look at how people come to uh, the relationship with food, uh, which you know, is also another issue that we have, you know, around people's you know, healthy eating and obesity and, and those kind of endemic situations. You know, those relationships are also embedded very early on in, in, in people's lives. So you know, one of the first things that we, that we ask people to do uh, is you know, we, we effectively, in the, in the application, we ask people to take uh, an assessment because we want to understand, you know, which one of those money beliefs is the most prevalent in you. You know, we, we have effectively different money beliefs that reflect your different ways of looking at money. And it's only really through first understanding that and understanding your kind of what that belief system is that drives your behavior. Yeah. Can you money, start to- Money romance. I got run money yeah. romance. There we are. Yes, exactly. So, the, so you know, and it's interesting when we, when people take that assessment for the first time, they get very, um, you know, some people just say, oh my God, this is me. Absolutely. Yeah, you've absolutely nailed it. Other people go, well, I don't know. And then they go away and then they go, oh, actually, the more I think about that, yeah, actually, that's really accurate. You know, I, I've done this before. It's kind of maybe, you know, we, we obviously lay out what, what that means. And none of, the, none of these things, it's important to say, none of these beliefs are in themselves bad. You know, there's not, every, everyone has these things. Yes. The important thing is to first recognize that this is a belief that you have deep inside you. And it will govern on it will govern how you behave with everything to do with money um and you know your job is effectively to recognize that belief 
be able to recognize when it's driving your behavior and then effectively be able to manage that behavior, manage the way that you behave through that, you know, through that belief, that belief is making you behave in that way. Um, and again, this is, um, this is something that we feel very strongly about. It, 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 it's, and it's something that's been explored in other fields. I go back to that point about food. If you look at somebody like a Noom, you know, Noom does a very similar thing with, with a diet and, and, um, and health eating. It says, you know, the reason why if you've tried these different dieting techniques, the reason why they failed is not because you are a failure or you're a loser. It's because your underlying belief system is preventing you from sustaining that diet, sustaining that, that thing. And so the first thing that Noom does is it says we have to effectively rebuild your relationship with food. We have to think you, you to think about food in a, slight, in a different way. Once we re rebuild that relationship, then we can start to give you, you know, give you more structured guidance about, okay, well, maybe you should start having smaller portion sizes, or maybe you should, you know, not go off and, you know, eat three pizzas in the evening before you go to bed. You know, there are things you can do, but, and it's very, very similar with finance. If you look at a lot of finance institutions go very quickly to this kind of idea of financial literacy. Oh, you know, the reason why people can't save is because they don't understand how to do it. That's absolutely rubbish. Most people know exactly what they should do. They know they should pay off high interest debt before low interest debt. They know they should spend less than they make. But the problem is their belief systems, their online belief systems about money prevent them from doing that. It jeopardizes them from actually doing those kind of things. And of course, then it gets into this very nasty cycle where, you know, especially when you, with financial literacy, a lot of financial literacy is kind of laid out in a very simple way because they want it to be easily digestible. Yes. And what happens is you get this negative feedback loop where that simplistic advice, you know, just make a budget, just spend, you know, you think to yourself, well, I can't even do that. So I must be a total failure. And then it becomes this kind of negative feedback loop and people in the same way that they, that people do with their weight and with, with other issues, they kind of spiral into this, this negative feedback loop and they just think, and this is what we found when we were doing the original research for this app, you know, this outpouring of just kind of frustration and nihilism about finance and just like, oh, I'm, a, I'm useless, everybody else is great. And of course, it's just not true. You know, every, very, 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 very few people have a perfect relationship with money. It's an endemic problem that we're facing. Yeah, I, I just don't see anybody else taking it on, taking it on as Stackin is taking it on. And having signed up for the app myself, just being with even the questions or the prompts, I could see I was in you know contraction and a resistance to them and i was like oh you know the, the first day i signed up i was like do i want to be with these questions today it's a busy day it's a heavy day but that is what is so fascinating about it is the resistance shows up even in the conversation even in the thought process of it because you're starting to in my at least for me when i took it i was going to have to start to be with some hard questions and face some things and let me say this i have read hundreds of books on finance and our relationship to money like i'm not anybody who's brand new to this topic and yet even i was being triggered so i thought oh god what's gonna happen to those people who have never the first book i ever read was a book called the instant millionaire by i think it was mk fisher and you know at the time i was looking up to work at borders and that bookstore you know put these books in my hands that made me realize wow this relationship to money is much deeper and much more uh survival beast in our you know limbic system as you guys talk about so did you i'm kind of curious what was it that appealed to you the most 
about putting this focus out there for people? Well, it kind of came about as always, as all this stuff does through, we started, actually started off, um, I mean, I should go, let me back up a bit and talk yeah. a little bit about how we got to this point. So the business, as I said previously, was, was effectively a media company. I got introduced to the business actually by one of its investors, Howard Lindzen. Um, I came on board and at that stage, it was a media business that was putting out these videos and it started to get like inbound emails that were coming in from people and just comments on the bottom of the videos of people saying, you know, I've been left like $5,000 by my grand, you know, what, what should I, should I do with it? And of course, originally the business was just like, well, you know, I don't know, we just make videos. It's not, you know, no. but there was this kind of light bulb, the first light bulb that went off, which was like, hold on a minute, these people are asking us, which is probably because they don't have anybody else to ask. Yeah. Right. So that was the kind of first realization was like, okay, there's a, there's a requirement for kind of, in those days, we, it was originally, we thought it may have been financial access or financial advice. Uh, and, and, you know, we know why all that's happened. You know, if you look at the high street, you know, bank branches have closed everywhere. You know, if you, if you're in a, in a, in a, if you're not on one of the coastal cities, it's very hard to kind of find the natural places where you would go to find financial information have yeah. just evaporated. And we know that now. And so the first thing we did was we wanted to build a, a communication channel between ourselves and, 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 and that audience. And so what we did is we built a text matching platform. And what we said was, give us your cell phone number and we will send you two to three money tips uh, uh, a week. Um, and we built that business up to about, we had about 1.3 million subscribers uh, in, in 20, 2019. Um, and you know, the way that business worked, we'd send you money tips, we'd give you advice about investing, that kind of stuff. And every once in a while, we would, if you showed an interest in, for instance, savings or something, we would give you a referral to a, to a product. The business did very well, very well. And at the end of 2019, we raised a large round of finance. And then COVID happened in 2020 and the referral market and that whole business just stopped. And so, um, you know, at that stage, we, we kind of spent a bit of time like trying to work out whether we, it was something we were going to try to build out a bit more or fix and do those kind of things. But we always knew that we wanted to build a much deeper relationship with our, with our, with our, um, with our audience, with our users. And so what we did was we actually just thought, hold on a minute, we've got 1.3 million Americans, cell phone numbers effectively, right? We, we've got a, a large, we've got, we're in a very good position. We've got a huge amount of cash on the balance sheet. Let's uh, take the time now to actually just start talking to people and actually asking them, you know, see whether some of our hypotheses that we have about money are right. So the first thing we did was, you know, we went into the, I remember, I remember it clearly, we, we started speaking to people. And the first, obviously, assumption we had was, okay, this is all about access. You know, the problem, the reason why people can't hit their financial goals, they can't reach their objectives is because they don't have access to the right tools. Um, we were dissuaded of that very, very quickly. It was like everybody had like brokerage accounts, crypto. I mean, we had people that with three crypto accounts who had no idea what to do with crypto, but just were like, I'd open these accounts. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so that was, so the idea about access was just like, no, it's a, it's a, it's a misnomer. The second thing we thought was, the second hypothesis was like, okay, well, if it's not about access, it's got to be about literacy. And obviously, this is a common thing, you know, financial literacy programs, blah, 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 blah. But again, as I said earlier, as we dug into this, you know, that was just not the case. Everybody knew what they were supposed to do with money. They all knew they were supposed to pay off high interest debt, spend less than what it. But what actually happened was there was this kind of just outpouring of like, you get into a, you do a conversation like this with it, with a user. And within about two minutes, it would just be this like outpouring of just emotional, like, frustration and oh my god i'm rubbish with money like everybody else is like buying houses i'm just stuck i don't know what i'm doing i'm and and it would just come up time and time again and it would become within about 10 minutes of the conversation you'd almost be having a therapy session you know the person would be saying look it's not that bad it's okay you know yeah. it's fine we're all like this and they'd be like are they and 
And yeah. that was really when the kind of light bulb went off. And so the, the realization was that like, hold on a minute, this isn't a finance crisis. This is a health crisis. Yeah. And I think for us, that was like, our, that was the point that we realized, okay, we're onto something here. And so that kind of inquisitive, like meander through just talking to people, we'd uncovered this, this, okay, these people, they're not struggling with access. They're not struggling with literacy. What they're struggling with is their kind of, effectively their mental health around money. They're actually this relationship that they have with this thing, money themselves. Yeah. Um, and at that stage, you know, we then went deep into kind of product development phase. We did, um, you know, I've got a great team in the business, uh, Sam, who's, who's um, VP of strategy. He did a fantastic job. He pulled in um, Megan Ford, who's the uh, creator of the Ford financial empowerment model. She was at the University of Georgia. Uh, and Amanda Clayton, who's kind of who's heading this kind of financial therapy, which is a kind of emerging field in, in therapy. And we just started re reading all the financial literature. I bought the top 25 financial advice books on Amazon, sat down and read them and, and started to realize that there was just this massive gap between, you know, what you said there, these kind of traditional, you know, popular financial advice books and actually what people needed, which was this much more like yeah a, a real kind of analysis of their existing mindset like what you know why do i why can't i stick to a budget that was a question that kept coming you know i make a budget i can't stick to it right. and it's like okay well you know and they would beat themselves up they would be like you know I, it means i'm a loser i can't and it's like first of all stop doing that you know stop telling yourself you're a loser because it's just not true we all struggle okay with this stuff um you know and then really kind of starting to unpack like okay what are the features and the tools that we can do to kind of help people you know, get through this kind of these these mental blockers that they have, have about it. So we started, having done all the research, going into product development mode, we started doing a lot of work around, uh, we started doing one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions like this, yeah. and we started to introduce concepts which had then ended up in, in the app. So we did a we did a, a concept around journaling. You know, we just said to people, um, you know, this was, a, this was a fascinating thing to watch. We would take a user who was, you know, struggling with compulsive spending. Okay, they would be continually compulsively spending. And we say to them, right, all I want you to do for the next 10 days, I just want you to journal, okay, write down at the end of your day, your experience with money that day, okay, your relationship, how you felt, how it made you feel, that kind of stuff. And within 10 days, they would totally stop compulsive spending, like just instantly stop. Because the the, the mechanism of like actually facing up to that when they would find they would be in the, in the mall or they would be, you know, at the place where they were traditional online and they would be thinking, I'm going to buy this stuff. They would then recognize that, hold on in a very short period of time i'm going to have to write about this and i'm going to have to analyze how i feel about this right. and you know i'm not going to feel great because you know as soon as i buy that as soon as i spend that 600 bucks on whatever it is yeah. you know uh, like it, that the the enjoyment quickly dissipates so that yeah. was the first yeah we do also did stuff as well we did um which is ended up in the app we asked users to to rate their transactions we said look we want you every every single day we want you to take some time just to rate your transactions not by the amount, not by the merchant where you bought it, but literally just how it made you feel. And this was for users who came to us and said, oh, I feel like I'm, I'm living paycheck to paycheck. And we'd say, okay, right, just for the next week, I want you to rate how every transaction you spent of your discretionary income, this is income that you can control, how it made you feel. And what we would find is 40% of users, sorry, 40% of the transactions of these users that they said that they had, they had complete control over didn't make them feel good. They actually made them feel frustrated. You know, like oh, I went out for a drink with this person, but I don't really like them. And I bought this and I don't know why I bought it. And so at the end of the week, we'd be able to say, look, you, you feel like you're living paycheck to paycheck, but 40% of the stuff that you control in your money that you're spending doesn't make you feel good. So before you even start thinking about setting a budget, 
just start spending more money on things you like and less on things you don't like. Yes. And it was kind of, yeah, it was these kind of like processes that we did. So we did a lot of this work. We started, but we also did, which is really interesting. We did kind of group coaching calls. We brought friends together. That was fascinating because, you know, we'd have a conversation and because people, a lot of people wanted to just talk about money. They didn't have anyone they could talk to. You know, yes. they couldn't talk to their friends. They couldn't talk to their family because they thought that all their friends were doing so much better than they were. Their family, you know, just couldn't relate because it's like different generational things. So we bring people together and we do coaching calls with them. And it would be fascinating because, you know, about five minutes into the conversation, you know, one of them would say, God, you know, yeah, I just, re I'm really bad with money. And their friend would go, are you? Well, so am I. And then there would just be this like hallelujah moment where everyone's just like, my God, that's awesome to say. I'm rubbish with it. And it would be just like, yes, we, everyone is like, you know, don't believe what you see on, yeah. you know, Instagram or whatever. It just isn't true. Like everyone is struggling with this. Totally. Um, and so kind of rebasing that stuff. So, you know, that's where, and then, and then about kind of uh, six months ago, we really started piling all of that into the app. Um, and that's what, you know, we launched it on the 1st of July. It's got those core features in there. We're going to bring out a lot more in the next couple of months. And, you know, we think it's a huge opportunity. We think that, you know, what Noom is doing for, for people's relationship with food, we can do for people's relationship with finance because we think it's endemic. There are more, more people in the U.S. suffer from money anxiety than suffer from obesity. So, you know, it is just an, an endemic issue. It's a staggering number. And, and yet I have the evidence just in the 15 years that I've been doing this coaching. There's nobody who doesn't have to take a hard look at what that relationship is. But mm. part of what I feel stops them is the shame attached to it. And so it's it's really hard to take a hard look at your relationship to money if you feel ashamed, like all those people were like shocked that other people in the room felt they were bad at money. It's it and that's part of why it keeps every everybody hiding it or not yeah. talking about it because the yeah. stigma of I'm the only one who doesn't have a perfect relation with money. It's like, no, you are actually yeah. much more everybody struggling in some way. But you, you do and I and I think so, you know, I, I think social media has, has increased that. You know, I think that there's a, there's a huge tendency, you know, I've had a background in, in, in professional finance as well. And I, it always makes me laugh. You know, some of the most successful people I've ever worked with, you know, will celebrate their, their worst trades more than they will ever their, their, their best trades, you know, they, and they'll laugh at themselves and they'll, they'll have the humility to, to recognize that they've, the, the idea that in any way you can understand how this very complicated world works is ridiculous. And, you know, when you get it right, fantastic, but most of the time you get it wrong. And I think when I look now, especially at you know, how young people kind of take to this stuff, they're learning all the wrong lessons. It's all about, again, about like trying to show, yeah, yeah, well, I've, I figured it all out, you know, and, I've, and I think, you know, this, this kind of, this is all a, a symptom of a broken relationship that people have with money and finance and to really progress. And if you want to, genuinely hit your financial goals you have to fix that you know you're not gonna you're always gonna struggle um and it's interesting you know in all a lot of our research we tend to find this comes to an head at an inflection point what tends to happen is either it happens when people are kind of in their mid-20s when they've kind of gone through the period of they've been partying all the time it's been great they come out of college and they don't care because you know they're just spending everything and then suddenly, you know, either somebody in their friendship group gets married or maybe somebody puts a deposit down the house and there's a kind of awakening of like, oh, my God, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like months, you know, years away from being able to do that. Yeah. Or the second 
inflection point is actually when people become settled down together, you know, and there's this combination of finance. And it's really interesting, like people who, you know, are very much in love suddenly bring their finances together and it's like a flashpoint. It's like, you did what? You know, and, and we had people that we would talk to who, you know, there was one guy who's, I always remember this is a fantastic interview. He he was, you know, he was, he didn't have a huge amount of savings, but he was kind of, he was okay. And he, he, he was like a, kind of a money avoider. He was somebody who just didn't really think it was important. He wasn't really bothered about it. Yeah. And he needed help to kind of, to, to kind of like engage with money more, understand, he needed to open his bills. He needed to understand more about like, okay, you want to get from here to here. This is, you know, you're going to need to totally. engage with money to totally. make that stuff happen. And his girlfriend, his longtime partner, she had $50,000 in her checking account, okay? No, not a savings account, $50,000 in her checking account. She, did, she earned maybe like 140, something like that. And she got um, a speeding ticket uh, and it was like 110 bucks. And he came home from work and she was like, she was literally like hyperventilating on the sofa. And he was like, what, 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 like, what's happened? Well, you know, I got a speeding ticket. And he was thinking, well, like what? Like, is it, yeah, how much? And she's like, it's like $110. And he was like, Oh my god! And then he re he realized like she, her issue is, is is a money hoarder. She hoards money, yeah. right? And and any sense of dent into the money that she's hoarded feels like a personal failure. And so those two, you know, those two relationships, those two individuals, those two belief systems coming together was just a huge friction point. And you know, you see it time and again where you know they have to then work together to kind of understand. Okay, I understand what's driving his view, and I understand what's driving my view in that regard. Definitely, definitely. And just having this, you, how can we show sensitivity to our partner's relationship to money if we haven't examined our own relationship to money? Mm -hmm. So why don't you tell us the descriptors, the one that came up for me, I, of course, uh, I, I resisted it at first, but then I was like, yes, this is true. And also one of the gals on my team, she answered the questions first on my behalf. And unfortunately, that's what she got. And I was ticked off. So I was like, I'm going to take it again. But then, of course, I got it too. And I was like, <laughs> shit, she really knows me. She's kind of my COO. So I was just like, oh, man. But that description specifically said, if you're going to probably have that label or identification if you had a negative change in your family's financial circumstance when you were a child mm -hmm. so tell yep. us about the types that people potentially could be just an mm -hmm. overview so people have a sense of what they might themselves be sure so um the important thing to say before i start is um everybody has all of these beliefs you know in, in there but they depending on effectively that very early experience you've had around money, whether you grew up with a family that was very poor or, you know, maybe your parents didn't discuss money at all or whatever it was, you know, that will push one of those beliefs forward in your psyche. And also as you kind of go through life and you pick up experiences that also pushes those beliefs up and down. So at any one time, people can be exhibiting a specific belief, but that can change after over time. And it's not, it's not that, you know, I've only got one belief and these other ones I don't have any connection with. It, yes. it's, it's, it's a, it's, it is a kind of more mix of it. So the four, four beliefs effectively, we've heard the, the one I think you, that you were referring to is, you know, is to romanticize money. This is to kind of, is to have a, uh, you know, an attachment to money that is perhaps a bit more beyond what money is, right? So money, we, are, we, we always say to people, at the end of the day, money is just a tool, okay? Mm -hmm. It's something that you have that you can do 
that ultimately allows you to do what you want to do with it. Okay. It's not in itself a, 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 a be all and end all. And, you know, most of the time when you see people who, you know, talk about being a millionaire, for instance, they, what they actually mean is they mean to spend a million dollars. They don't actually mean to have a million dollars. Right. right? And, and, you know, and so people who kind of tend to romanticize it will put money above other, other enjoyments around, you know, whether it's, you know, time with their families or things like that, they'll chase things which are effectively a, 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 a reflection of that kind of, that belief that money is all that matters. It is the be all and end all. And it can come from, you know, people who if you've grown up in a very poor household, mm-hmm. um, it can also come if you come in, in, in a very wealthy household and you you just idolize that kind of, that kind of approach to that in, the, in that regard. Um, the second belief is, is a reflective. So this is for somebody who kind of, like believes that money reflects status, right? So, you know, it, it could be that you see that, um, you know, having money, having nice clothes, having nice things is really, really important because that speaks to who you are and it tells other people who you are. Uh, and, you, you know, we see this a lot with people who, especially, and of course, with the advent and, you know, the proliferation of social media, you see this a lot, you know, people running up significant amounts of credit card debt because they, you know, they believe that, if they can, if they have that car or they have that 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 set of clothes or whatever it is, that respond that it tells the rest of the world that they are successful and therefore it reflects on them in that regard. The third uh, we talk about is evasive money. Is an evasive money belief. This is people who you know will choose to just have nothing to do with money at all. You know they don't want to. They believe that, and it could be driven by the fact they believe money is evil. Um, you know, money is the root source of evil. It could just be that they just don't, they don't really have an interest in it. These are people who tend to not open their credit card statements. They don't open their, you know, their bank. They don't look, want to look at their bank balance. Um, and they actually actively will just avoid any interaction with money. So it can be things like one of the exercises we do with people who, who exhibit disbelief is, you know, we just get them, first of all, just to open their credit card statement. Don't even look at it. Just get into the habit of when it arrives, open it, put it on the table. Right. And then you work into the basis of, okay, now you open it. Now we want you to, we want you to just look at it. Don't, you don't have to pay it. We're not, you know, and it's just a process where it takes a couple of weeks and sometimes months to get people comfortable to the fact that like, okay, I'm now engaging, you know, I'm not, I don't feel that kind of trepidation, that kind of stuff. And then the fourth type is what we call the kind of protective. So this is, these are people like I just gave you that example of that lady who will literally punish themselves to hold money. And, and you see this, you can come through a lot with, with people who've got this kind of, if, sometimes you read about people who, you know, this kind of financial independence, retire early, you know, movement, not saying that all those people uh, exhibit this, but it's people who, you know, will give up large parts of their happiness just to retain money at all costs because they they feel, you know, again, it could be that they've, they've either been bequeathed money from their family and therefore they feel that they have to protect it and it's been drummed into them, you know, this is money that's come down generationally. Or equally, it could be that they've grown up in a very poor household where they where the money has you know there's nobody around, and now they just feel like they have to hold on to it. And you you find this a lot with people who, and I, I worry about this sometimes in the in the way that kind of financial media describes, like you know how well you should save for your for your house. Well, you know maybe, but you know if you're in your twenties, you also need to enjoy your life because you only get your twenties or your thirties once, right? And I think you know it's a balance, and so. You, know, you find a lot of people can get very, very, you know, very kind of driven around this kind of protective stuff. So those are the those are the four beliefs as we kind of summarize them. I love them, and I do agree that probably all four show up in different ways. Just e- even as you were describing them, um, yeah. I, I think what's fascinating is that at least if you're conscious of those 
terminologies or that kind of behavior, you're just going to start to see it more frequently. What yeah. would you say would be just if you could have one mindset shift around people's relationship to money, what would you like to see happy? Wow, that's a great question. Well, I think the so I think actually the first step is people to recognize that they have a relationship with money. And I, I know that might sound a little bit kind of a bit too pithy, but it's it's we we have relationships with things, right? We have you know we said before that Numa's done a fantastic job of, of 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 illustrating that people have relationships with food, and of course we have relationships with people and that kind of stuff. And every relationship needs work. You know, it, we we all know that. And as you get older, you know, you you, you learn those lessons, and you know, have to put more effort into stuff around those things. And I think that for people like many many people don't see that they they have a relationship with money they just think it's just oh it's money so it's like i get it and i spend it and it comes to and it's like no that's just not true you know you 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 do have an like it's and 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 i think so i think like the first thing i would ask for anyone to think about is like is to ask themselves the question you know like what is my relationship with money like what, what and i think that's like a really and i think you know what you said earlier about when you started using the app and you're like oh god i don't know what i'm kind of ready to start answering some of these questions yet and i think for a lot of things that's you know that's what we want you to do we want you to kind of go away and think yeah actually these are asking some really quite profound questions about my relationship with money which i probably know like because the, the reason you don't want to answer them is not because you don't you can't answer them it's because right. you probably do know the answer but you're it's deep down there and you know you you kind of need to kind of go away and prepare yourself for like oh, I'm, I'm gonna have to say i'm gonna have to front up a lot of this stuff to myself that i probably avoided for a long period of my life exactly. and and again you know I, we find this the same with it's interesting as you as you speak to people who have got more wealth or higher incomes you know what you find is like the issues are exactly the same but they've just managed to obscure them and what you tend to find is when if they have a bad financial event if something negative happens to them they absolutely collapse because all of that you know wealth and income goes away and suddenly those really bad issues are, you know, they're unresolved and they, and, and they become like, it becomes very acute. So I think like, I would just ask where we are right now, I think is just people to recognize that they have a relationship with it and they, and they should go away and just really think about what that relationship is. Where does it come from? You know, because it, it will, it will help them start to understand why they behave like they do. Yeah, for sure. One, one of the things is, as I was, you know, looking in, experiencing the app answering the questions and just being present once again to my own relation to money with this whole experience with your app one of the memories that came for me was because of my parents getting divorced at an early age i was experiencing uh with my dad's kind of you know new family a very different financial lifestyle I was very wealthy and uh i can remember just enjoying like they had an outdoor pool at a cabana and it was just like oh my god a kid's you know dream come true but one of the memories that came up for me was i wasn't letting myself fully enjoy that because i felt guilty because my mother wasn't experiencing it and that yeah. became this like aha moment for me that there's a part of me probably still that holds it at arm's length as if I don't have a right to have this because somebody else does it. Yeah, that's a really, really, really important point. That's, you know, I, I, I think that's like those stories are so much more 
present than than you would think you know and in the we did over probably over 250 260 hours worth of of user interviews to to, to kind of come up with this and you know the the those stories those kind of uh, issues where people for the first time like admit to themselves you know god i've been carrying this around with me for like you know and if it's people in their 20s like five years and if it's people in their 40s it's 20 years and one of the things i'd say is and I wrote about this uh, in one of the posts, you know, what we ended up actually really out of a lot of the user research is um, I wanted to try and frame um, the, the kind of concept that we have in, in, in a kind of framework. And one of the things I wrote about, you know, if, if you visit my profile on LinkedIn, you'll see it's up there, is we talk about um, what we realized was that we had to put a kind of prism over how people how people's financial situation changed right and so what we did was we took the lens of volatility and this is i think probably where some of your audience will probably understand this a little bit more through this prism so what we did is we said okay if you think about somebody's financial situation as it is right right now okay um and you know there are positive and negative changes that happens to everyone's financial situation maybe you're on the negative side on the left hand side of the of the distribution you'll have people you know they lose their job Maybe they get an unexpected medical bill, those kind of things, right? And um, you know, th- there's there's quite a bit of work built around around how to kind of you know how to insulate yourself from that in a, in a professional term, how to hedge that you know your your exposure to that volatility on the left tail. Um, and you know, you can you obviously have those credit facilities, there's you know building emergency savings, you know, all this kind of stuff. But when we did this, what we realized is that there's actually a right tail, and the right tail is about people getting this kind of positive financial experiences. So what you just talked about there, okay, you know, when you, when, if you carry this guilt around with you about positive financial experiences, okay, what happens is you find that these people are really, really unprepared for when positive financial things happen to them. And by the way, they happen to everybody all, like all the time, yes. far more than people, than people yes. expect, right? People get, you know, wage rises, um, you know, bonuses, stimmy checks, you know, all these things happen. And what um, and what we realized is through doing this was that if people are unprepared for those events, they just they don't maximize them. They just effectively they just dissipate away. And 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 actually, as we got into this more, we we realized that actually there's there's a huge element of kind of social inequality around this. You know that if you if you you know why do people you know again one of the reports I was commenting on recently is about you know there's been a fantastic study around the fact that you know that the, they did an analysis of of uh, children who came from uh, you know underprivileged backgrounds un- underprivileged zip codes in the US um, and you know they compared them to other kids who came from the same backgrounds and some of these people you know went on to become successful and and wealthy and that stuff and you know the majority of the others didn't and they tried to work out what the correlation was and the biggest correlation was the fact that these kids just hung out with wealthy friends that's effectively all it was wow. and and you know the, what that did was that was that got lodged in their belief system, right? They understood because they were around the people who had money and experienced positive financial change. Yeah. They had the mechanism, the skills mm-hmm. that when it happened to them, they could maximize it, right? Mm-hmm. And, the, and the other kids from the same background had exactly the same opportunities, but they just had never been surrounded by people who could understand how to maximize those financial possibilities. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if you think about it that way, you know, if you think about those two tails in that distribution, yes, we're about making sure that you have that resilience to suffer those negative financial shocks, but you also need to have the mental preparedness to take advantage of the positives when they happen. You know, one of my all time favorite stats for this is, you know, if you win the lottery in the US, you're more likely to go bankrupt than if you don't. 
and and that just speaks to the point. It's this, you know, the idea that you, these people, if you're not prepared, you have to be mentally prepared for these positive financial changes to happen. Yeah. And I think you know, you see this with, uh, you know, and I'm sure some of your audience will, will relate to this. You know, lots of people, you know, when they get their first bonus or they get their first, you know, significant increase in salary or whatever it is, they don't maximize it. You know, it gets frittered away on the holidays, fast cars, what you know, whatever it is, mm-hmm. rather than them taking advantage of it. And of course, then, you know, a couple of years down the line, they get a negative shock and what could have been, you know, their nest egg or could have been their cushion, you know, has passed them by. But if you're feeling guilty for having received it in the first place because you haven't reconciled those old stories, then you are going to fritter it away because you want to get yourself back to homeostasis and not feel bad. And when I first, my first, you know, foray into finance was in a, a hedge fund and I was being compensated very generously. And the first bonus that I got, it was so big that I remember we had a conference out in Arizona and I signed up for an equine coaching experience. It's one of the, you know, I, I still didn't even know about coaching, but I had that experience and I brought that to my session was yeah. the lifestyle shift for me was so extreme that I felt ill-equipped to navigate it. And I remember after that session with her that day, I drove from Arizona to California. So it was like five hour trip. And I cried the entire time in a, in a cathartic way, because that session allowed me to start to be like, it's okay to have this much money. It's okay to have my lifestyle shift. And I saw all that guilt then too, like, you know, do I deserve this? Am I worthy of this? Blah, blah, blah. But that just taught me, whoa, if this good stuff feels hard to be with, isn't that going to prevent other good stuff, me letting other good stuff in or financial abundance in? Exactly, exactly. And that, and that, this is why, you know, we, we, when people, you know, read about the stuff that we're working on, you know, a lot of the time we get questions, well, isn't this just like what financial advisors do? And it's like, no, 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 it's, it's completely different. You know, uh, uh, you know, we, we're in this kind of emergent field of, of financial therapy and it really sits in between, you know, financial advisors can tell you, you know, if you go to a financial advisor and say, well, I've got a hundred, you know, I've got a hundred thousand dollar bonus. Okay. And I want to do something with it, but I feel really guilty. And I feel like I've got all these big, they're going to say, well, look, I can help you you know, put a portfolio together, but I can't deal with your guilt or any of that stuff. Right? And if you go to a therapist and you say, look, I got under, but I got all this guilt, they can say, well, I can help you with the guilt, but I can't put a portfolio together, right? So you, what you have is this kind of thing that falls in between these two stools where people, you know, and, and increasingly, you know, the, this kind of social isolation that we, that we have by, you know, everything now is, is, you know, intermediated through this device. We don't have these kind of very human interactions where people can just, yeah, literally, you know, break down and say, look, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm struggling. I don't really know what I'm doing. Or, you know, I don't know. I've just been given the largest amount of money I've ever been given in my life. And I'm in floods of tears. You know, I don't know why that, why am I feeling like this? And, you know, I think like having, there's just a huge demand for this out here that basically, you know, prepares people for both the negative, but and the positive things that are going to happen in their lives so that they can come to somebody and say, look, you know, I don't know why I'm feeling like this. I should be feeling happy, but I don't yeah. feel happy. Yep. You know, um, or I, or I don't. You know, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. You know, like, yeah, and so that's a lot of the stuff that we've done. Exactly. The, the the other question that I just wanted to make sure I speak to is, what could people 
keep, how could they specifically keep an eye out for the symptoms? What are the symptoms mm-hmm. that someone has a bad, I don't want to even say bad relationship, but costly. Unhealthy. Yeah, I'd say so. It's exactly. It, there's lots of them. I mean, you see them all. I mean, you know, I can go through, you know, whether it's uh, you know, compulsive spending, whether it's, I mean, even an inability, you know, if you feel, we kind of put a lot of things under the umbrella of just money anxiety. You know, if you feel anxious about money, whether that is, you know, you, whether it can be all the way to like, I, I, you know, I, I can't sleep at night. It can be just like, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm in control. You know, I, I, a lot of people come to us and say, I don't feel like, I feel like my money controls me. I don't control my money. Right. And, and that's like one, a, a common thing. Um, and that can be like, you know, yes, compulsive spending. It can be even, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going out. Like I'm just going to stay in for the entire month, not see any friends, you know, um, but I'm doing that because, but I, I'm doing that because I feel like I'm serving a master rather than, you know, it, it is doing this kind of stuff. So I think like anything where you're aware that your money is having an impact on you, you know, living your life the way you want to live it, you know, all the way through to having really quite, you know, yes, behaviors where you are, I mean, we, I, we, t- you know, there's a lot of people we talk to and a, a lot of the kind of key symptoms come out obviously i you know I, I can't go into those specific topics but there are you know we see a lot of behaviors where it, you know a lot of the common stuff that you have whether it's you know people looking for you know comfort in retail therapy uh you know being able to um you know trying to stick to a budget but just continually blowing out the budget you know struggling to kind of you know uh, yeah not opening bank statements not opening credit card statements um all the way through to people feeling yeah people feeling like they're on top of stuff but just you know not feeling like they're getting they want to get to where they want to get to you know that we there was you know we have people who have these goals and you know they'll say to themselves you know i want to do this by the time i'm x okay and um by the way just on that point yeah we should we when, whenever we talk to people but we whenever we talk to our users about goals it's very interesting because the first set we have to ask them twice the first time we ask them they all say oh i want to buy a house i want to get married whatever and then you say, okay, fine. I know that's what you think we want to hear, but yeah. what do you actually want to do? Like really, and you know, you get like people saying things like, you know, you know I want to go to Antarctica by the time I'm 30. Brilliant. Okay, that's something you really care about, okay? Uh-huh. But they'll immediately say afterwards, but it's not possible. It's just not going to happen, okay? And you'll say, well, why? You know, you're 25, you know, it's five years away. Why is it not possible? And they're like, oh, you know, it's just ne- it's never going to happen. And then you kind of sit down with them and you say, okay, well, look, let's work it out. How much is it going to cost? It's going to cost, you know, 5,000 bucks. Okay. Well, that's you know, five years away. It's a thousand bucks a year. It's like 80 something bucks a month to save. You can't save it, you know? And then they're like, oh no, I, I could do that. Yes. And it's like, well, right. And so you, you, you know, there's this kind of, a lot of people, you know, a lot of the symptom is also just people either not almost not wanting to vocalize or face up to what they really want to do with their money like what would make me happy yes. okay i'm doing this job i've got i've always told myself since a kid i wanted to you know go to the andes or you know go to europe or whatever it is yeah and i don't vocalize it. i don't th- i don't put it it's in the back of my head but i don't write it down i don't work a plan out because i, I don't want to d- disappoint myself you know i don't i don't want to upset myself by that stuff so that's there's all those kind of symptoms as well so i think it's that you know Everyone who is listening to this will probably have an, it will probably reflect on that and think, oh yeah, there's a part of me that's this or there's part of me that's that. And I think those are those are all signs that you know you're not in control of your money. Your money is in control of you. It's having an impact on your emotions. It's having an impact on your anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and these are things that like 
can be all be solved. You know, yeah. you, you just have to start on that basis of understanding that you've got a relationship with money, understanding what it is, and then start working on how you can fix it. Yeah, beautifully said. And that's what you just shared is, I remember vividly before I got that job in that hedge fund, I was going, I went to St. John in the US Virgin Islands, thanks to the generosity of a few friends. And when I left that island, you know, and I, I didn't do every water sport everybody else did, but I had such a great time that when I got on the plane after that trip, I made a promise to the island that I would be back on my own dime first class in one year. So I had to like make that happen, which was switching positions. And that's when, you know, I found myself in a very different uh, level. But that concept, I just remember, how is this going to happen? I had to look at like, well, I can't do it this salary. I'm going to have to make a higher salary. And just looking at that truth and making that decision unfolded a different future that probably wouldn't have happened for a bunch of years if I didn't feel that fire inside my belly over it and and that's what i feel your the app is really advocating start to tune in to what that fire in your belly is and don't be so uh, cynical that maybe you can't accomplish it yeah exactly that's exactly it and i think you know just recognize that you know we all as we go through life so we have this tendency to believe everything will stay the same as it currently is. You know, I either, either, you know, I'm going to earn the same amount of money. Or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, you know, carry on living. You know, my example I always give, you know, like in March, 2020, a bunch of very young people were living in these small shoebox apartment in London or New York because they used the city as their kind of their, their lounge. And, um, and they never thought that they would ever have to be stuck inside a shoebox apartment every day for, you know, and then COVID here and right. And so, and the way to kind of see that in a financial sense, the way I look at it is like taking that mindset or having that mindset about the fact of this kind of constant stasis is that you're effectively short volatility. You're selling, you're selling vol, right? And, you know, and we do that all the time. We, you know, whether it's, you know, we, we, we maybe drink a bit too much alcohol or we, you know, eat too much fatty food or whatever, or we drive a little bit too fast, right? And the great thing about selling volatility, as anyone who sells vol knows, is you get paid. You get paid a little bit every single time, right? And, you know, maybe driving a little bit too fast, you get somewhere quicker, right? And, you know, drinking too much beer is, you know, good fun, right? So you go and do it. But at some point, right, selling vol catches up with you. And, you know, and this is how I think about it with, in, in, in a finance sense. If you, if you kind of presume that you're going to stay on this, this road and, you know, nothing significantly bad is going to happen to you and nothing significantly good is going to happen to you, you're effectively short volatility, right? And if you don't, and, and to get to the other side of that trade, you have to basically put the work in. You have to, to buy volatility. You have to make a payment. And that payment is, you know, you've got to go to the gym. You've got to stop drinking so much beer. You've got to stop, you've got to drive the speed limit. But the benefit is that when something changes, you know, you're in a much better position because you, you, you put yourself in that position. And I think, you know, especially for finance people, if they think about this, the, the concepts of what we're doing, what we're talking about here, which is like, look, you have to put the work in now, right? When, when you're in a position that if you put this off too long, what will happen is your know, volatility will catch up with you. Yeah. You will find yourself that your financial situation changes either for the positive or for the negative. Yes. Um, and you won't have the actual, the, the underlying mentality, the underlying relationship that will help you either 
you know, negate the negatives or take advantage of the positive. Uh, and that for us is, you, know, you won't I have think, the stomach yeah. for it. You won't have the muscle, uh, muscle built to withstand yeah. the pressure. Like, yeah. Good or, you know, the positive or the negative pressure, you won't have what it takes. And yes. it's heartbreaking because the earlier you do that and reconcile whatever that childhood imprint is around money, your whole life could look different just by taking that look. And that's what I yeah. feel stacking does. It's, it is truly financial. It's an advocacy for financial wellness and it's bringing it into our day-to-day -day moments. And that I think is, it's, it's gonna be game-changing for countless people, Tom. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you. I, I, we're absolutely. I mean, we, we we think it's you know we see it as a mission. It's it's for us very much a yes. you know we believe that this is an endemic issue, um, and we you know we feel strongly that you know it needs to be dealt with, and we, we you know we can affect the lives, we can change the lives of millions and millions of Americans. So we are very very proud to be on it and, yeah. and pushing forward. I wanted to just say one last thing actually, yeah. just about that. Uh, the term. Um, the term financial wellness is used by lots of different uh, different organizations. And I think sometimes it gets a bit hijacked. So, you know, yeah. we, we do feel that financial wellness is important. Um, but the way that we think about it is that, you know, to get to a point where you feel financially well, you have to, it's both, you know, both the kind of emotional and mindset side, as well as the finance side. Lots of people will, will solely focus on the finance world side. You know, a lot of traditional finance says, right, all the emotional stuff, we're just going to ignore because it's too complicated and we're just going to focus on this bit here right and it's completely impossible you know humans you cannot you know the greatest parts about humans are their emotions and so asking people to ignore those emotional things just never ever ever works and i think you know for, for, for me like when i hear financial wellness i always make sure i always want to go and look and see okay is this if this has nothing to do with mindset or emotions or how what the things that actually drive people to get people up in the morning that you do stuff if it doesn't have that it's, ne it's never going to succeed. Um, and I feel you know, very strongly about that. Yeah, I'm 100% with you. It's, you're, you know, preaching to the choir. This is what I talk about all the time. And I'm, and I'm always saying, like, if you just think it's about, you know, certainly with traders and even for investors, they think it's all about the strategy. And I'm like, that strategy is only going to be of value if you find out what those dragons are in the basement yeah. of who you are because those yeah. are driving your bus not your freaking strategy it'd be great if you could just be so completely you know, would it be great that's what i say i'd be nice they say oh it'd be great if i could just cut myself off from my emotions i'm like no you would be a robot you would not be a human being it, and it doesn't work i mean it, you know the, because the, the, this is again you know if you come back to our to our point you know the, when we talk about these belief systems you know recognizing you have a relationship with money is important. Um, you know, and recognizing the fact that that is an emotional relationship is really important. You know, like if you think, well, the solution to this is to effectively become a, you know, become an Android and just, you know, have no relationship. Well, then you're effectively, you're just giving over control again to money. You're saying, well, so the money rules my world. The only way I can, I can deal with money is through being completely emotionless. So I'm just going to cut myself off completely. That's crazy. You know, take, you have to take back control. It's, you know, this is about you. There's a great, there's a, a very good book, uh, which I'm sure you've read by Morgan Housel called The Psychology of Money. Yes. He goes into this in a lot of detail. It's, it's, you know, very, very, lots of great anecdotes. 
about this kind of like you know the, the the he's got fantastic anecdotes about how people who you know are exceptionally successful investors um how they've harnessed their emotions harnessed their you know not taken that that mindset of kind of you know well i have to turn into a robot to be able to analyze this stuff how to actually understand what they're effectively a lot of the stuff that we're putting forward here understand what their underlying beliefs are understand what their emotional drivers are recognize their own relationship they have with finance and then and then recognize how that drives it can be used to their it can obviously be used as a disadvantage but how it can be used as an advantage and i think you know if people who are very wealthy and very successful investors like that can do it everyone can do it Absolutely. I'm 100% with you. I asked you at the start of this, if maybe you would do a part two at some point, because I want to have this conversation keep happening, because the more aware people become to the fact that this relationship is the is the foundation, it's the foundational block of everything else. Certainly relationships, especially if you have a partner whose relationship to money is very different from yours, that is definitely going to get in the way, not only if you financially co-creating a future together, but the emotional uh, costs that are going to come. And I've seen that in coaching as well, where, you know, the client talks about their partner feeling very different than them. And I'm like, you can't ignore that. You got to pull that apart. What's yours? What's hers or his? Like, figure it out. So anyway, just thank you for coming on here. Thank you for creating Stackin. I can't wait to see how many lives do change from it. So my life has already changed from it. So thank you, Tom. Thank you for Brilliant. coming on my podcast and hopefully we'll have you back. Absolutely, absolutely, Kim. Okay. Thanks a lot. Okay. This has been the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. You can find out more about her and her team online at thewallstreetcoach.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.